Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Yes, I forgot my drink. All right, now we are, we are absolutely ready to go. Um, let me encourage you um, when, we, when we do sing worship to feel free and let it out. Just, just belt it out. Just don't, don't ever be ashamed to worship God. We are among people who, who need to hear your voice. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that last worship song was pretty intense, man. I got some serious apologetics in there, some Romans 1, some gospel. Man, I was already thinking of a whole nother sermon just to, whoa, come on. <laughs> you know, talking about the metaverse first, you know, just, oh, oh man. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refocus myself after, after great worship and, and talk about um, finishing John chapter 3 with you today. And so question for you is, do you like uh, reality competition shows? Reality competition shows? Yeah, some of us. And here's, like, no one's going to admit it, right? I mean, no, we don't watch those. And so whenever people ask me, especially about television, what kind of shows do I watch, um, I try to think of the most obscure thing I can, right? Like, just because I'm super cool, right? You need to know, like, my taste is just so obscure and awesome. Um, but if I'm being really honest, if I'm being really honest with that question, <clears throat> Even as recent as this week, I watched like probably my favorite show, which is The Great British Bake Off. Great British Bake Off. Oh my gosh. So awesome. You know, I love the, the lush exterior. It's just so beautiful. You have all these um, exotic uh, British accents, right, from the different regions. You're not sure what they're saying. It's so fun. You know, learning about new pastries. Oh my gosh, there's pastries I don't know about? Come on. And so just the artistry, uh, the artistry just blows me away. But one of my favorite aspects of this show is the way the contestants treat each other. And so it's different. And so there's no prize in the Great British Bake Off. There's no money, vacation, there's nothing. They get like some flowers and I believe a cake stand with the logo on it. And that's it. And so what that means is there's not this fierce underlining or undermining competition between everybody, which means that you have these sweet you know, British people who are just really nice to each other and encouraging and helpful, and they try to figure out things together, they encourage one another. And when one of them gets sent home that week, usually everybody's crying. Like, they're genuinely upset. Like, they're hugging each other and crying that somebody went home. And so it's not the typical reality competition. There's no backbiting, um, no, no talking garbage. People aren't jealous of one another. They have their own context. They have an oven. They have a fridge. They, they have their countertop. And they're just going to do their thing. And so their joy comes from the fact that they get to do it. Their joy is they were invited. Their joy is they get to participate, and they have their area they're going to participate in, and they're going to work with everybody else without it being a competition. And I believe, truly, this is the way that the church should operate, uh, the local church, the global church. You know, it's, it's not a competition. 
We should be encouraging, encouraging each other. Like, we don't win a prize if we out-church the next church, right? I mean, we all have Jesus Christ. Like, that's the best gift ever. Like, what possibly else are we trying to accomplish by out-churching, you know, the neighboring churches? And so it's with that in mind that we go to finish John chapter 3 this morning. So let me pray for us. Um, Heavenly Father, um, just talking about pastries. Thank you for pastries. Goodness. Thank you for um, just all, all the common grace that we find, even um, as we sung about in our breath. Thank you so much for that and, and for fog and for, and for life itself, Lord. Um, I ask this morning as we go through the, um, finishing up John chapter 3 that we would really, uh, you'd work on our hearts and work on our minds to understand our own ministry context and understand that oh, we're not competing with other churches, Lord, and that really we, we are here to, to help Bakersfield come to you, Lord. And so just um, take joy, Lord, in our worship of you and help us, Lord, to make much of Jesus in Bakersfield. Amen. All right, so yeah, we're in John chapter 3. Everybody should be there. So here's the deal. There's no reality competitions 2,000 years ago, right? There's not. Um, but the Bible shows, in reality, there was very much a competition. And so this would have made for a great show. And, and what would the topic of this show be? Baptism. Baptism, right? There's this crazy like, race going on to baptize people. And we see this in verses 22 through 26, where it says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And so there's a lot of people baptizing right here, right? So three camps we know of, at least from this scripture, baptizing. And we also know historically, there's all kinds of baptisms going on, right? Uh, Roman, Gnostic, there's just so many baptisms going on. And so it says John found a good amount of water to give him the space for his baptizing ministry. And so in these three verses, we see Jesus and his disciples baptizing. We see John and his disciples baptizing and then we see the Jew that they're talking to representing Jewish baptism or our purification rites, which was the original issue. And it doesn't really flesh it out in the text. It just says they were talking about the difference between John's baptism and purification. But quickly, it moves over and John's disciples go over and, and talk to John, their leader, their rabbi, John the Baptist, right? And so if this were a competition, John the Baptist is the guy you'd put all your money on, right? Like Baptist is in his title, like, how do you not, like, this guy's going to win it for sure. And, of course, that's not, not what John thought. We read in Matthew uh, 3, 11, where John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, if it were a competition, like, Jesus is just, he's going to win outright. Like, John is splashing around water is what he's saying. But Jesus is baptizing with the Holy Spirit, with fire, superior baptism. Jesus wins this competition, hands down. Now, John's disciples were not comfortable with this idea. 
they were more concerned with the fact, like, it's like, hey, we're losing people. More people are going over to Jesus and his disciples to be baptized. So John's disciples viewed this as like a competition. They viewed it as a game, one that they are now losing, right? And so they're not even concerned about like the, the conversations with the Jews anymore. Their concern is like, hey, this guy is out baptizing us. Like, you know, Rabbi, what are you going to do about it? What do you have to say about it? And so they were jealous in a way for the fame of John, right? As I, I get that, as they should be. You know, I think that's reasonable. Um, but I, I do think that they maybe didn't pay attention or maybe weren't as good disciples as they thought they were because as, as we've heard and seen, John is always pointing to Jesus. Like he says, like, my job is to get people to Jesus. I'm just preparing the way. Like this isn't the way. I'm preparing for the way who is Jesus, and they missed that. You know, John understood his assignment. And so for the most of our time this morning, we're going to spend looking at John's response to his disciples, right? His response to his disciples saying, like, dude, like, we are losing. We are losing really bad. What are we going to do? And so let's start by looking at John's response. And in this, I do believe we see uh, the way that we can exalt Christ in ministry, if you want to have a Christ-exalting ministry, look at the way John handles things here. Verse 27, John answers his disciples, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And so the first thing we learn is that you can exalt Christ by receiving your ministry as a gift. Receiving your ministry as a gift. The thing John has that we need to have is a very high view of God. Right? His whole life, you look at his lifestyle, it, it has to be completely based on a high view of God, which is great because he allows everything that comes to his life to be, oh, well, this is from God. This is from God because God, God is above all. John's joy, you know, in other gospels, it talks about how, how John ate like insects. Like he wasn't like doing fine dining, right? He was eating insects. And so why is this guy happy and so content? It's because he knows, like his joy is in that he gets to participate. God, God called him and gave him a specific context and a specific ministry. He knows what his purpose is, right? Baptize people, get them wet, prepare the way, point people to Jesus. He's not struggling with his identity. He's not thinking about whether he should write a book. He's not thinking about whether he should go, or, go on like a speaking tour of Judea. Like he knows, no, like I have one job, right? Get people wet, tell them to go to Jesus. And so he's laser focused in on his ministry because it's from God and he believes that. If God gives you a ministry and he told you to do that, then why are we getting distracted? Why are we not sure about what we're doing? But I think that we would all agree that sometimes... You know, we talk about valuing what's given to us. Valuing the gifts that we receive is really based on the value of the giver. We must value the giver in order to really appreciate the gift. Now, don't get me wrong. If somebody gave me a cool and expensive gift and I'm not soliciting, if somebody gave me something, you know, cool and expensive, I would appreciate it. You know, I, I would. I really would. But at the same time, like my wife Gianna, she could pick up a rock from outside and give it to me. And I would be, oh, that's so awesome. And I would put it on my shelf, and I would think it was an awesome gift because of my love for Gianna. And we do that the same with gifts from our kids, don't we? Like, you know, uh, when they're younger and they sculpt something for us in school, we don't know what that is they sculpted, right? We're just taking their word for it. it, it it's horrible looking. But, but it's awesome. And we're genuinely, like, we love the fact that we got this gift. And we, my kids are so offended. Uh, we hold on to these things, right? There's a lot of meaning because the value is in the giver. 
you know. Who needs a Renoir when you can have macaroni art? Now, the other side of that is sometimes the value is not on the giver, but the value that we place on the gift that's received. So the context, like ministry. You know, how do we treat our ministry? Well, it depends on the value of the giver, but it also depends on the value of that thing we've received. You know, there's been people that I've talked to since I've been out here. Um, I reached out to, to plenty of pastors when I came out here. Um, who are very encouraged by Vanguard and who are praying for Vanguard and who are rooting for us. But there was also a couple, and I'm not going to mention names, who were like, what are you doing out here? Vanguard still exists? How long, is the, how long are they going to be around? You know, I've even had other pastors basically offer me a job. It's like, well, okay, well, in a couple months, this is, this is what we do for people here if, if you want to come here. And so they, don't, they didn't value something like Vanguard the fact that we don't have 5,000 people, you know, th this ministry can't possibly be of value. You know, I see this often with cars. And so if you've ever, if you've ever gotten a gift of a car, good for you. I've never gotten that. Um, but, you know, people get excited. That's one of those gifts. You've got a car. What? That's, that's a great gift. Um, especially if you're surprised and you didn't know it was coming. And you're so appreciative of that gift and the value you place in it that you take care of it, you wash it, you get the oil changed, and you completely appreciate that gift. Now, of course, if you're like me and you look up videos um, about people who didn't get the gifts they want, um, and you see people who get cars that are not the color they want or, or the make they want, and they throw a fit. And to me, it's hilarious and sad. Um, but yeah, they don't appreciate the gift. They don't, even if they value the giver, they don't appreciate that gift and that opportunity they have, so they treat it poorly. Now, John here, he values the giver and the gift. You know, that's where his joy is. That's why he understands, he knows who he is. He knows who, who's giving the gift, and he knows what the gift is, as should we, right? We need to value our ministry. We need to value our ministry context, and church, we all have a ministry given to us from above. Even if you're saying, no, James, it's only you who's in ministry, nonsense. We all have a ministry. We're going we're gonna to go over this. You're going to have to trust me. The first ministry we have is to self. Ministry to self. If you've had long conversations with me, you know the first thing I'll do is ask about your heart, and I'll ask about your mind. I'm not being nosy. I'm asking you how you minister to yourself. You, whether you admit it or not, you listen to yourself, take care, of, take care of yourself, and trust yourself more than anybody else in your life, right? And you need the gospel. You need to be reminded every day, every hour, even more often than that, about how valuable Jesus is, where you were, where you are, all that you have. And the only person who could do that effectively and consistently is yourself. Like, I'm not enough for that job. I'm not. So you have to do this in order to, to know who the giver is. Like, you can't value the giver if you don't know who he is. You can't value your ministry if you don't know what it is. And so you have to pray and study and come to church, spend time with the people of God. Now, one of my favorite verses, Romans 12, 2, and maybe you're saying, like, I mentioned this verse like every other sermon. I probably do. Um, <clears throat> but it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. And so you're in charge of that to yourself, right? You need to make sure you do whatever it takes, you know, set your alarm, mark your calendar, have the books by your bedside, have somebody you're accountable to so that you can take care of that ministry to yourself. Your first ministry is to yourself. That's how you're going to know what's good and acceptable and even perfect, as Paul says. And so you have to treat ministry to yourself as being a serious ministry. It's not being selfish. You need this. You can't give what you don't have. And you need to have it so that you can minister to number two, your family. How are you going to minister to your family if you don't minister to yourself? What are you giving them? What are you giving them? And so, of course, biologically speaking, husbands and wives, that is your ministry. That is your ministry, first and foremost. If you've come to me, as some of you have, asking about how to get into ministry, you know I've already said, let's talk about, let's talk about your spouse. What would they say? Because that's how I know if you're ready for ministry. You know, what does that relationship look like? Outside of that, your family, right? Your, your, your kids, your family, and I would include grandparents and aunts and uncles within your family. You have access to a family. You have access to minister to specific people who would not ever walk in these doors, who would not ever look up Vanguard online. And yet you have access to them because you are family. And so that means they are your ministry. You know, take that leadership, take that ministry. Point people to God, pray for your family, pray with your family, gather your family, bring them to church, bring your friends to church. Be that encouraging and loving example of righteousness. You know, one of the things I always tell my kids as they, as they write and produce stuff and create stuff, I always say, show, don't tell. Like, that's it. Like, I was an English major, studied film. Show, don't tell. That's what it all comes down to. That is not ministry. Ministry is show and tell, right? And if, if you're lacking one or the other, what are you going to do, right? It, j- it just doesn't work. Show and tell your family. And I could tell you this, the world is trying to mold your family into something, right? And it's not obedience to or exaltation of Christ. It's not, I promise you. And so how are they going to learn? How are they going to learn that Christ is even an option, That's not common information anymore. The average person does not know the gospel, does not know their Bible anymore. There's no more dots to connect like in the past. There's no dots. We have to provide all the information. The only way we can give this gift to our family is if we minister to ourselves first and then minister to our family, treating them as a ministry because they absolutely are a ministry. A ministry that is the qualification for leadership in the church. And that's why I ask people when they talk to me about that, right? Those are the qualifications for leadership. It's not having a master's degree, you know, a master of divinity. It's not, you know? It's like your character. What does your family say about you? And so secondly, your spiritual family. So the church, you know, that Christ bought with his blood and purchased, right? This is your family. I truly believe that. Like never, like, like never before in my past can I think of a church that I would say, like literally, not just say the words, but say, oh, this is my family. This is my church family. I believe that this is a family. You guys know that you guys embrace each other as a family. I see it. It is absolutely amazing. It's that, yeah, show and tell. You guys show that you're a family. It is so encouraging. But ministry to the church, it doesn't mean that you're preaching. 
It doesn't mean that you're leading worship. Ministry doesn't have to be like that. Just your presence alone is a ministry. Encouraging one another by singing songs is a ministry. I think I've seen every single person here at some point push a table, right? We've, we've all, you know, we all have bruises on our ankles from pushing these tables around. That's a ministry. God sees that. Are you kidding me? You think that's less valuable than what I do? Setting this up? You know, I was having a conversation, you know, before church um, with Dylan about the fact that, you know, we create a sacred space in a cafeteria. It takes a church to do that. I'm not doing that by talking. But ever since I came here last summer for the first time, I never felt like we were in a cafeteria. It's like I felt like this was a church. You guys take that initiative, your ministry, to make this a sacred space. And it's unbelievable how quickly we could set this up and tear this down and be this, this sacred space for people to come and worship Christ. It is, it is a ministry. And I'm so glad that I know you treat it like that and you show up and you put in that effort and that sweat. And I know it's difficult, you know, not having the Allens here last weekend. Man, we were sweating, right? Oh, <laughs> a lot of sweat going on. Um, but it's so wonderful that we, that we treat this like a ministry because it is. Our, our presence in this church and activity in this church is a ministry, and I'm glad that you see that. And we need to see that and so that we can minister to Bakersfield. Ministry to Bakersfield. Why did I call this series God Save Bakersfield? because this is, our, this is our context. This is our region. This is, this is where we are from. We are not Los Angeles. We are not the beach. We are not SoCal. We are Bakersfield. It is different, right? It, it is so different. And, and is Bakersfield in the Bible? Well, no. I mean, but there's bakers and there's fields. So, I mean, technically, right, I, I could make this argument. But, I mean, my point is this, that you know, God and his communication and his judgment often does it by regions, not churches. And so when Paul wrote his letters to the Romans, that wasn't one church. That was the churches in Rome. You know, in Revelation, like the letters go out to regions, the church of these different cities and different stops, and it would go to one church, and then it would just go around all the churches in a region. So God views regions. And Bakersfield, Kern County is our region. This is our area. This is important. These are the people that we're trying to reach. And I think it's to our advantage that we can't go nowhere, right? Where are we going to go? I mean, there's a couple of towns around us. But, you know, I, I used to, the last place that I, that I was a pastor at, I, I left one area and drove nearly 40 minutes to get to a completely different area in Aurora, Colorado, um, which is where you see all the shootings on the news, very bad area. But I left my region to go to another region, and that we can't do that here. And I think that's an advantage. Like we know if we're going to minister, it's going to be to Kern County. It's going to be to Bakersfield. And I, I, really, I really like that. We could focus like John, right, on our ministry. We are not distracted by, by going somewhere else, by going far away. We can only go so far and we're still going to be in Kern County, right? I mean, I hope nobody's commuting to, to Los Angeles just to go to church. And so the question isn't do we have a ministry, but the question is do we believe that ministry is from God? Do we believe it's from God, this work that we do? We need to have that high John view of God if we are going to minister well. And so the next thing that we could learn from John about exalting Christ in ministry is rejecting competition. Rejecting competition. <clears throat> and we find this in verse 28. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And so the disciples of John, not, like, not unlike many churches today, um, just viewed everything as a competition. This uh, reality competition show ideology. It's us versus them. You know, and I don't mean us versus them like church versus the world, right? We're talking church versus church to be the ultimate church competition. I don't know, I don't know what the goal is of that. I know it's not biblical. There are many reasons for this, like with John's disciples, the fact they were jealous, right? They're jealous. Um, sometimes it has to do with power and pride and money, right? It's not even gospel issues. It's just power issues. There's so much power to be held and this isn't just me ranting or being critical. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, uh, Paul says the same thing. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Pride, envy, rivalry. It gets ridiculous. These are the pastors of Paul's day he's talking about. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about people who are leading churches. They want it to be, you know, celebrities, just like in our day, right? Celebrity pastors. We had these in Colorado where, you know, on bus stops, it said, you know, I'm not going to name churches, but come to this church. And then a big picture of the pastor. It's like, really? Like, it's celebrity. Come see this celebrity pastor, you know, teach you, you know, motivate you. And and it's not new. It happened back in this day. And that's why, why Paul says, they, they afflict me in my imprisonment. They were happy that Paul was in prison because Paul had more power. And so they're happy Paul's out of the picture. And, and Paul, you know, just being rock star awesome guy that he is, he's like, well, hey, at least, at least people are preaching the gospel. Even though they're mean, even though they're selfish and they're full of envy, they're preaching the gospel. And Paul knows that the gospel is its own power, right? Like in Romans 1, like the power of the gospel saves people. That's how we put it out there. That's why we preach the gospel and present it, because it has the power to save people. And so you can have people who are not saved save people. I've heard, I've heard stories, try not to laugh, but literally people who have come to the faith like through TBN, right? And if you've ever seen TBN, you know what I'm talking about? Like, and I, I know people who have watched those shows and all the pageantry and, and, and the circus environment and still got the gospel somehow out of that and it completely transformed their lives. And so Paul knew, like, it, it's all about the gospel. At least it's being preached. But, and Paul mentions in other places, he doesn't want a competition. Like, don't follow people, follow Christ. And so we, we must reject competition with others in the faith. And we must also reject comparison. Comparison is psychological torture. Comparison is psychological torture. I don't care what subject we're talking about. I don't care about what area of your life you're talking about. It, it is psychological torture. So every week on my way here, I pass by a church. It's called Disciples Church. You guys pass by that? So it's a big church. It has a cool building. I've been inside of it. Oh my goodness gracious, it, it, is, it is laid out. It, it is just fantastic. Um, <clears throat> and they have a really cool pastor. I'd like to think I'm cool. I try, right? I, I try. I try to be cool. 
But, you know, Pastor Joshua over there, he's a cool dude. He's a biker, um, loves the Lord. Um, you know, we text sometimes. It is a biblically faithful church. It's a good biblical church. Now, I could compare myself to him, but what good would that do? What good would it do for me to compare myself to him? What good would it do for, for Vanguard to compare itself to Disciples Church? It wouldn't do us any good. We'd end up in a really dark place, you know, curled up in a ball. It, it, no good would come out of comparing ourselves to them. But we don't need to, right? Because we're on the same team. And so, you know, th that's what John is trying to communicate. It's like we, we are on the same team. How, how can we be jealous when the name of the Lord and the word of the Lord is being preached? How can we be, be jealous of a church that does it and reaches people, you know, and makes much of Jesus in Bakersfield? Our goal isn't for Vanguard to win the battle of churches of Bakersfield, right? No, it's to embrace our ministry that God gave us and be faithful in that ministry, right? And win people to Jesus. That's all we're required to do. If we get outside of that or stress about anything else, it's just going to distract us and it's going to slow us down. Now, back in the book of Numbers, Moses came across a similar situation um, to that of John and his disciples, where it says in Numbers 11, 26 through 29, as Jen read earlier. Now, two men remained in the camp, um, one named Aldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So they prophesied in the camp, and a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so, man, and so um, if you've read through the story of Moses, this poor guy is consistently stressed out of his mind, right? And so Joshua is like, there's people like doing the Lord's work and prophesying, you know, and, and people aren't paying attention to you and Moses. It's like, goodness gracious, that's awesome. Somebody helping me? right? That is great. We are on the same team. I would that everybody would help me. What do I care? Why are you jealous for my sake? The same thing that John could have said to his disciples. And he essentially says the same thing when he says, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. I am on his team. I know my role. And so with John, John's disciples, it's kind of weird because they're upset that Christ is the more famous Christian, Right? It's a very weird dynamic that John is trying to take them through, like, that this shouldn't be the case. This is a good thing. And so even here at Vanguard, God has given us a number to minister to. I don't know how many it is. It's not as, as many as some churches, but I hope that our heart is, whoever we get, that we're going to be faithful to them, and we're going to embrace our ministry to them and point them to Jesus. And we could do that by rejecting competition receiving our ministry as a gift, rejecting competition, and lastly, sending invites. Sending invites to Bakersfield. And this will make sense, I promise, after we read verse 29. The one who has his bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. And so what we have here is, is John giving an analogy of, of his ministry to Jesus. And I believe um, what all ministry should be to, 
to Jesus, right? And it's, it's this wedding analogy that I think we need to be, um, go through this a little bit finer. The context for weddings today is not the same as this day. So being a best man in this context is not like being, I mean, I know where your mind is already going. It's not the same thing. Best man duties are completely different uh, nowadays. <clears throat> and so before we get into that, though, before we look at this analogy, we have to understand what John is working with, and that is the fact that throughout the Bible, the church is the bride of Christ, right? John didn't just make this up, right? He's like, no, all this operates on the fact that, that the church is the bride of Christ. As we see in Revelation 19.7, another one of my favorite verses, the culmination of redemptive history takes place in this moment where it says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And that's us, right? It's going to be so awesome. I, I just can't imagine just the joy that we're going to have and how long that's going to last, right? And so Jesus also uses this terminology often, describing himself as the bridegroom in Matthew 9, 15. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm the bridegroom. Like, at this point in his ministry, he's like, look, I, you know, I have been telling you guys, I've been using all, all, all these metaphors, right, and all these parables, but at this point, he's like, it's me. I am the bridegroom. I will not be here pretty soon. So Jesus is the bridegroom, and John is the best man and the friend of the bridegroom. So at the Jewish wedding, the best man was the most important person outside of the people getting married. It's a huge responsibility. And so we could see in some of the duties, um, we could see our own duties even to, to ministering to Bakersfield. And the first of those is the best man was a liaison, right? He did all the communication through or for the bride and the groom as that event drew near. Just as I believe, you know, as the church in two different ways, one to each other, as Revelation draws near and we get closer to that moment, we are to encourage each other. Like we, compared to last week, we are a week closer to being married to the Lamb, right? So we, bless you, we encourage each other in that, right? I mean, our, our gathering, it, it's a shadow of that moment, right? We come together just like we're going to come together to be married, you know, in the, in the church that day, in Christ. You know, even the taking of communion itself, you know, it's an RSVP for that wedding, right? Yes, we look backwards. Yes, we're reminded that Jesus bought the bride with his blood, but Jesus also makes it eschatological, where he says, I look forward to the day when I can partake this with you. So Jesus is saying, hey, on the wedding day, I'm going to drink with you. There's going to be a day where we are going to like see eye to eye. You're going to hear my voice. We're going to laugh together. We're going to eat heaven bread, you know, and heaven wine. And so when we take communion, that's that RSVP saying, yes, Jesus, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there for that moment. And the other part of that is just, you know, as we see in the Gospels, trying to get others who don't know the wedding is taking place, right? And we go out into the community. It's like, this is happening, right? You need to come to Christ. You know, prepare them for, for that future moment. Now, another duty of the best man is that he sent out invitations. So best man, and, and not as easy as today. Like, so sending out invitations, who knows? It's going to take months, right? Depending on the size of your town to get around town and send out all the invitations, 
But John sent out invitations, right, to people, invited people to come to Jesus. He proclaimed, he yelled, he did everything he could. He changed conversations about anything into, oh yeah, Jesus is awesome. Oh, you like me? You'll love Jesus. Just everything got repurposed and refocused back to an invitation to Jesus. So what does that look like for us? Well, the first is social media. And I'll keep on you guys about this. I know a lot of you do this already, but social media, oh my gosh, it, it is, it's been proven to be one of the most effective tools in ministry today to reach people who don't have a church to go to, who aren't even thinking about church. And so it takes, I mean, it takes a lot of effort for me because I'm older and technology in me, you know, but even if I can do it, you can do it. And so all you have to do is follow Vanguard, right? And just repost when we post like, hey, come Sunday morning, like, share, you know, or, or send it to somebody specifically. The easiest way that we could promote the church, right? And so just feel free to do that. <clears throat> it's so easy. At worst, somebody might block you, right? You know, we talked about that last week. You know, you show somebody the light, some are going to run away and some are going to come to it. So, but still do it. And the second is by proclaiming like John did. Good old-fashioned talking about Jesus, right? Uh, We've got to use words and actions. And here's the deal. Like, I know for years, so when I was growing up, it's like you didn't talk about politics or religion, right? You guys heard that? Like, you just don't talk about those subjects. Well, where did that go? Everywhere I go, people are talking about politics. Stuff that's not even political gets politicized, right? So let me encourage you that that, that is out the door. And so what I would love to hear instead, instead of, of, of more politics is hearing about Jesus, right? That rule is broken. It's time. I want to hear more about Jesus than politics. And here's the deal. and I find this upsetting. There are people in our world who are very comfortable with talking about Jesus, but they're non-believers, And so, if you've ever been on social media or had conversations, people have no problem, you know, dumping on Jesus, or if they're cursing, saying his name, right? And yet, what I see very often is Christians who are very timid in saying his name. And so, why are unbelievers okay to use his name as a curse name, and we're not okay with using his name as a blessing and an invitation? So, let me encourage you that we need to do that. We need to create that culture, Lastly, the best man, um, and the best man has, um, in my research, like 40 different things that they did. um, My plan wasn't to take us till 5 o'clock tonight. Um, But um, he guarded the bridal chamber, which I mentioned because he mentions it here in this text. And that doesn't really apply to us necessarily, um, but it does apply to to John's disciples. Like, why would John be telling his disciples about hearing the bridegroom's voice? It's because the, 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 the... best man would guard the bridal chamber. So nobody could mess with the bride, right? And that was his job. And so the best man loves the moment when he hears the bridegroom's voice because that means this long, drawn-out, very, you know, complicated, hard work is over. Because once the bridegroom comes to the bridal chamber, the best man is off. It's just he hears the voice, job done. You know, he doesn't want to be a best man probably again. It's very hard work, but there's a lot of joy in that. And that's why he says he rejoices at the fact that, that Jesus is here. You know, I don't know if that means he gets to stop eating bugs or what, but um, <clears throat> so he rejoices. And so it's interesting. Uh, one of the, the things, obviously, that the best man couldn't do 
If there's one thing the best man couldn't do, it was marry the bride, right? I mean, that just makes sense. And so, but it was actually law. It was written, best man cannot marry the bride. Best man cannot enter um, the bride's chamber, which is what John is saying, essentially, when he says, I am not the Christ. He's saying, this is not my wedding, right? This is not my wedding at all. You guys want me to be mad and concerned that people are going to Jesus. My whole purpose was for people to go to Jesus. Like, no, I'm really excited. I'm really happy. Everything I've done was to fulfill this role as a best man to get people to Jesus. No, I'm not going to be upset. I'm going to be excited. I'm going to decrease and he's going to increase because how could a wedding be about the best man? How can the wedding be about, about the best man? Just as likewise in our ministries, the more Jesus we have them in them, the better, right? It, it does no use to have a Bible study or a community group or a youth group if we're not talking about Jesus, right? If we're not filtering everything through Christ in that biblical worldview. It, it, we need Jesus to be the focus. Um, as you've heard me say, this is not the James show, right? I, I'm here to point you to Jesus, and we need more of Jesus, pointing away from ourselves, our fame, um, whatever we think we have, it's not, people don't need that. They need Jesus. I don't care what we have to offer, whatever our skills are, we should use those to bring people to Jesus. And so we need to invite people by sharing the gospel. And I know, I've talked about it before, oh my gosh, how discouraging is it to share the gospel? Especially in public, right? Like face to face. It is so discouraging. However, you know, of all the things that we could stress about when we do this, the one thing we shouldn't stress about is the results of sharing the gospel. And I think we see this as we finish out chapter 3 in verses 31 through 36. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and no one receives his testimony. It's key. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so what we see here is a summary, right, of the gospel, of being born again. Everything we've looked at in chapter 3 already. Jesus has all authority and he offers himself. And as it says here, and as we've learned, the gospel is rejected. It's rejected. And yet somehow by God's grace, God still, Jesus gives his spirit to people so that they can be born again. And so you have to believe in Jesus to have eternal life or face that wrath that you were going to face anyway. And so as we embrace our ministry to Bakersfield, we need to do it as a ministry from above. Realize Vanguard Church, God has given us specifically everything we have, and we need to embrace it. This was what God knew that, that we needed, what Bakersfield needed. And we need to, to not be jealous or compete with other churches and realize that the power belongs to Jesus. Yes, we're going to share the gospel, but we don't have the power to change anybody's minds, right? And so we're going to be rejected. And we're going to be rejected, and we're going to be rejected, and people aren't going to like us, right? But some people are going to receive. Like, that's the good news. The gospel is good news to the people who receive it. 
and there's going to be those who are going to receive it. And so that's why we continue, right? We continue to go out to Bakersfield and offer those invites. Those people who receive it, they'll receive the Holy Spirit and they will be transformed and they will be prepared for that Revelation 19 day, for that wedding day. And on that day, church, all of our joy will be complete. This is all a shadow, right? We will see each other for eternity. But on that day, our joy will be complete. We will be psyched out of our minds, right, seeing Jesus. We will see each other and high-five each other for getting here. We'll see John the Baptist. We'll see everybody, and we're going to rejoice in that moment. But I also know there's other people out there in Bakersfield who has no idea what we're talking about. It doesn't like weddings and certainly doesn't know anything about the church or Jesus. And so we need to make sure we go out there and give those invitations. Right? Give those invitations. And yeah, may God save Bakersfield. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.